1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is our passage as we come back to our study of this great book that we've been in really for the majority of this year. And we are looking at this passage uh, with great fascination uh, because it is instructing us as to the end times. We're not the only ones who are fascinated. As we started to say last week, the world has its own fascination with the end. It has all of its theories that have come and gone and continue to be dreamt up. If you go back a few decades, the fascination was with some speculation about nuclear holocaust and how it would eradicate mankind and obliterate the world. Of course, you've always had the fringe who are looking for some invasion by extraterrestrial life forms or some meteor falling out of the sky. You have the fear of pandemic disease. These days you have the environmentalist who never want to let a crisis go without linking it to global climate change and telling us that if we don't do some dramatic thing, then our cities are going to flood and our crops are going to fail and we're going to be sort of driven from the face of the earth. And over and over again, you have all of this speculation about how things are going to end, how the world will end, theories and scenarios, which all ultimately are out there as products of the evil one, Satan himself, who sort of apes or mimics some scenario that really is spelled out by the Scripture. Yet in contrast to all that, the Scripture is abundantly clear when it comes to the end. Contrary to popular notions, sometimes even in evangelical circles, that that the end times are so obscure or so mysterious, it's, it's almost like a noble thing in the some circles these days to proclaim that you have no idea about how things are going to end up, no idea how everything's going to sort of conclude. You have no real clarity about eschatology. It's too confusing, too obscure, too inconclusive to really have any kind of benefit. And so all over the Christian world, people are pushing the subject of end times into the background, into the uh, sort of the fringes and, and dismissing anybody who would want to look into these things. We looked last week how that is so foreign to the notion that you find in Scripture, It would have been foreign to a Jew. A Jew really began his theology with his eschatology. He began his whole understanding of his God and his covenant with promises that were made to the forefathers about how things would end up about how everything would be uh, consolidated, everything be summed up in the end, about how the kingdom would be established and about how the promises would be fulfilled. That's how, that's how the Old Testament saints began their theological discussions. They began with eschatology. And it was very clear as they read through the scripture, they, they read and they read with the same sort of interpretation they read everywhere else. They just read the scripture for the plain meaning that it was there. And so there was, there was sort of a common agreement among Jews, uh, even in the first century, about how things would end up. 
As you come to the New Testament, you don't find much that varies. The New Testament apostles all speak about the end times frequently. Some of the longest discourses that we have in the teaching of Jesus have to do with the end times. And they don't contradict themes that we find in the Old Testament. They affirm those themes. They affirm those notions. And they continue to drive us towards the same end. The end which calls for the validation of God's name. The end which calls for the redemption of God's people. The end which calls for the judgment of the world with all of its details. The big mystery in all of this has never been what is going to happen. The big mystery has always been when it's going to happen. There's really not a lot of seeming confusion about that. And so as we saw last week, looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul speaks to the Thessalonians and saying, look, you don't have need for anyone to write to you about the times and the seasons, which as we said was a kind of a technical phrase for the, all of the events, the, the times and the seasons, the plural, meaning all of the, all of the things are going to wrap up the end. You don't have any need to write, uh, anyone to write to you about that because apparently in the three months that Paul was with them, he had spelled all that out very clearly. It was plain in the Old Testament scripture. What really was the mystery was the timing, when all of this was going to happen. Paul says, you know very well, as we taught you, it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's, it's going to remain an uncertainty. It's going to remain a mystery all the way to the end. You know it's going to happen. You know it'll happen like a thief in the night. You know it'll come with the rapture of the church. You know, it'll be followed with the day of the Lord, the judgment which comes over all the face of the earth. You know, it'll be the final week in the prophecy of Daniel, the 70th week when he talks about desolations. You know, it's going to come with the rise of an antichrist that's spelled out crystal clear over and over and over and over again in the scripture. You know that that, that this seven year period is going to come with devastating judgment across the face of the earth. The redeemed saints will be taken to the Lord and spared from that judgment. You know all of those things. You know it's going to be followed by a glorious kingdom that the Lord will establish where righteousness will reign over all the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. You know all of that stuff. The Bible spells it out in amazing detail when you take it at its face value according to the understanding of the authors who originally wrote it. The mystery is when will it all happen? In fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me for a moment at 1 Peter chapter 1. As Peter sort of defines all of this for us in, the, in, in terms of our perspective and our life and our, and our posture, we might say. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, this is what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is, just a, this, this is just the definition of a Christian in the mind of the Apostle Peter. You are a person who hasn't seen Christ. You haven't seen everything's to come, but you believe in it. You know there's an inheritance that's waiting for you. You know it as sure as you know anything that you've laid your eyes on because that's the nature of faith. And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you are rejoicing in what is coming your way. So you have this... You have this orientation towards the revelation of Jesus Christ, this orientation towards what's coming at the end, and you fixed your hope upon it because of the resurrection of Christ, and it fills you daily with joy. That is your life. That is the way that you're oriented. That's not all. He connects it even with the Old Testament. And he says, this isn't just you. This is the way that saints... Throughout all the ages have been. You'll see in verse 10. Concerning this salvation. What salvation? The salvation that's coming at the end. The revelation of Jesus Christ is coming at the end. All the glories that are awaiting you. Concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time. The spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now pay close attention to what he's saying there. He's not saying that they were inquiring about the details of what's going to happen in all the glories. What were they inquiring about? They were inquiring about what person and what time. They had all the the framework of this kingdom. They had all the understanding of the events that were going to come to the, at the end of time. They had all of that in place. What they were curious about is when this was going to happen and how exactly this person that they prophesied about over and over again was going to be manifested. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels are questioning about these events. Even they're curious, wanting to know when they're all going to take place. But Jesus says, no man knows. Luke chapter 12, even if he doesn't know, only the Father in heaven knows these events. But Peter says in verse 13, therefore, based on all of this reality, both Old Testament reality and and what's been preached to you, based on all of the glories that have been promised to you, therefore, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
This is our mindset. We are, as Paul said, citizens of heaven. Our citizenship, I should say, is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're in your Bibles, look over at 2 Peter chapter 3, because Peter isn't finished telling them about how to position their mindsets and how to frame their worldview. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up by sincere mind. uh, Excuse me. I'm stirring, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and and Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, what exactly are you talking about? Well, look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is what he wants to remind them, what he wants to remind you and I. We live in the midst of a world that is going to mock, mimic, caricature all of these things about the end. They're going to mock the return of Christ. They're going to scoff at such a notion that the world would be concluded in that way. They're going to point out how all things are operating sort of scientifically according to uniformalism. The way that they always have been portrays the way they always will be. That the world is going to carry on its course and its direction as it's now going. Nothing's going to change. Nothing is going to vary. It's going to go on as it has always gone on. And they insert maybe their theories from time to time with some sort of uh, uh, frenzy of activity. But overall, they themselves are not terribly upset about what's, or, or I should say about any sort of imminent destruction. This is the contrast between believers and unbelievers. Between what they claim to know versus what we know. Between their mindset and our mindset. Their mindset which, which mocks the whole idea of a return of Christ. Their mindset which, uh, which speculates on just about everything else except for the return of Christ. And my mindset and your mindset which is to be fixed on the realities of what has been revealed in the pages of Scripture. You know what's going to happen. You know it. And you've got to embrace the fact that you know it. You've got to realize that you're walking around in a world that, that 
doesn't have any idea about what's going to happen. And so their, their, their values and their day-to-day operation are all oriented around their ignorance. And you're walking around and you're not to be of the same mindset. You're not to be operating by the same values because you have a completely different understanding. You know what's going to happen. And it ought to impact your life. Now, if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is Paul's, this is Paul's argument here. He is, he is driving this, this whole discussion in a series of contrast between what you know and all the facts that you know versus what the unbelieving world doesn't know. All the contrast between their uh, ignorance and your insight between their view of the end and our view of the end. And with that sort of contrast, he's highlighting the difference between the way that they live their lives based on their lack of understanding and the way you ought to live your life based on what you know. And he's telling us it ought to make a difference. It ought to drive you in a certain direction. And to that end, we've been looking here at this passage and taking note of a number of characteristics then that Paul's highlighting here about those who live in the light of the return of Christ. Those who live in the light of His appearing and His coming judgment. And we saw last week the first of these characteristics in the first couple of verses that those who live in the light of His appearing are those who are aware of the suddenness of it. As we said, we, we know the details, but we don't know the timing. It's going to come like a, a thief in the night. It's going to come with that kind of, of unexpectedness. But the rest of the world, while they're caught by surprise, we, you and I should not be caught by surprise. You and I should not be so unaware. We ought to be those who are watching, who are ready who are prepared when he comes because we understand the suddenness of it. Well, this week we, we kind of move out of that characteristic of just understanding the suddenness to what Paul tells us in verses 3 through 5, that those who live in the light of his appearing are those who are aware of the self-deception of the world. They're aware of the self-deception of the world. They understand the darkness of the world around them, the confusion, the deception about how everything ends. It doesn't surprise them when they see all of this speculation. They're not duped by it. They're not drawn in by it. They're not chasing after all of these, uh, all of these uh, theories and, uh, and notions. The world that would want to look anywhere except for the judgment of Christ as the explanation of the end. Just like at the beginning, the language is so plain in Scripture about how the world began, but the world wants to find every other explanation in the book as a possibility except for the reality, as Peter says, that God spoke the world into existence. Well, in a similar way, that they will entertain just about any notion about the end except for the plainly revealed truth that the world will end with God's judgment. And so their attention is focused on anything but the truth. 
And so Paul says in verse 3, while people are saying there's peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. This is really Paul just kind of expanding on what he said about the whole thief in the night notion, how unexpected it's going to be. And he's describing the attitude of people. People are saying this. This is in contrast in verse 4 when he talks about you and about me, believers. So this is the unbelieving people, the unbelieving world. And what he says about them is that they will have no sense that anything will come along and will threaten their sense of safety and security. No sense that there's going to be anything that will disrupt their comfortable life. They will repeatedly reassure themselves that they are safe and that they are secure. They will be wrapped in a kind of fatal self-deception regarding their personal security. They'll be preoccupied with the things of the world and have no interest in preparing for the coming of Christ. In so many ways, they are a kind of a parallel to the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, who Jeremiah tells us again and again, were going about their country saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. I mean, these were respected voices. They were credible voices in society, and they were going around and and saying things that everyone was accepting. That there was no threat to Israel. There was no uh, imminent kind of destruction that was coming their way. There would be nothing but peace. And, And almost as the words are coming out of their mouth, the enemy sweeps in and destroys the city of Jerusalem. Well, the same thing Paul's saying here. While they are saying, or you could translate, while they're in the middle of saying, Peace and security. You can almost just imagine a press conference at some UN function when they're standing up and sort of gloating on on how we had, had advanced so far in civilization, how we had eradicated all kinds of threats uh, medically and, and uh, from a military standpoint. Almost as the words are coming out of their mouth, peace and security at that moment... The cry cry comes out and the skies are opened with the judgment of God. Paul uses even this uh, notion of a woman in labor, this image of labor pains, which compares with the suddenness. He says, says, suddenly destruction as a woman in labor pains. This was a frequent Old Testament uh, image Probably why Paul picks it up and uses it here. A frequent Old Testament image on the suddenness of how uh, God's judgment was going to come. Because it's it's a perfect image because it combines this idea of intense suddenness with intense pain coming quickly. As we said last week, I mean, this is not intended to try to get us to build a whole doctrine of the end times. People have ripped this away from its context and talked about how with a pregnancy, obviously there are visible signs as a growth of a baby in a womb and the general idea of a time frame for pregnancy. And so we can kind of see this, this approaching judgment. But it's obvious from the context here that this is talking about something unexpected. Paul is framing it here in this discussion of people who 
have the words in their mouth, peace and security, when suddenly destruction comes. This is the way the world sees it. This is their perspective on the end. And they're self-deceived. They're deluded. Not because no one's told them. They're deluded because they don't want to accept the truth. Jesus, in similar fashion, speaks about the end times in Luke chapter 17. In fact, if you have your Bibles, we were there a little bit last week, but we can look over there again. Luke 17 He compares it to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Luke 17, verse 26, he says, Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is telling us some very, very important things about the the general attitude of people at the time of the Lord's judgment, the time of the Lord's appearing. And Jesus gives us a couple of parallels here. First of all, like the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking. They were marrying, being given in marriage. Nothing wrong with that. Certainly nothing wrong with marrying and nothing wrong with eating. Nothing wrong with sort of these everyday activities. We we engage in them in a completely legitimate way. We do it to the glory of God in everything we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it to the glory of God. So there's nothing wrong with the activity, but what he's describing here is, you might say, the indifference to spiritual things. They went about their life in all of these normal activities without any sense of urgency about the end, without any sense that anything could ever go wrong, as they did in the days of Noah, even in the face of Noah's preaching Noah was, we're told, preaching righteousness. Or in another case, we're told that Noah was preaching warnings. And so it wasn't the fact that they weren't aware that a flood was coming. They had a voice in their society that was telling them clearly the way things were going to end. But they just refused to understand. They refused to believe it. And so they went on with their life. They went on with their days as if it wasn't coming. Or in Lot's day. As he says in verse 28, they're going on with their business. They're buying and they're selling and they're planting and they're building and eating and drinking, carrying on life as usual, wrapped up, you might say, in nothing more than the temporal activities of everyday life. They get in their they get in their groove, they get in their rhythm. If, they were, if you were talking about today, you'd say they get in their car, they, they hop on their train, they ride into work, they ride home from work, they get home, they make their meals, they turn on their television, they watch the next thing on their 
on their screen. They go to bed, they get up the next day, and that is all they do. No thought about the imminency of judgment. It's indifference, it's spiritual indifference. That's what characterizes the end. In Noah's day, there were millions of people who did this. Noah's, uh, Genesis 6, 7, and 8 describes Noah's day. At that point, people prior to the flood, when, when lifespans were hundreds of years long, because prior to the flood, the environment of the earth was so different, so favorable to that kind of a lifespan, there was literally a population explosion across the face of the earth. And yet, Genesis 6, 5 tells us the imagination or the intent of the hearts of men was only evil continually. Evil was dominant. Life was consumed with self-gratification, self-fulfillment. People were narcissistic to the extreme in those days. It was a wretched time, an evil time. There were literally demon-possessed men walking around the earth ravaging women. There was a culture of demon possession. It was a culture of sexual abandonment and all manner of wretchedness. So vile, the Lord regretted that He had made man on the face of the earth, we're told. And when the great flood came, It seemingly caught everyone by surprise. Just eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives were spared. The entire world swept away. And you have Lot's time. Genesis 19 tells us a story. When the world had become repopulated and civilized and set themselves into cities, Lot took up residence in a city called Sodom. We get our word sodomy from that. You know exactly what it means. It's homosexual sin, a vile kind of behavior that was predominant on the plains south of the Dead Sea in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Genesis tells us just how wicked it was when We read the story about two angels who came to visit Lot and they took up residence in Lot's house and the men of the city began to pound on the door because they wanted to violate these angels. And Lot thought it a wise thing to offer his daughters in exchange for the men, but the men wouldn't even accept that. And so God struck them with blindness, but even that wouldn't slow them down. They continued to grope through the darkness until eventually they were able to pound down the door. And what did God do? The moment Lot went out of the city, he rained down molten lava and fire and brimstone in a holocaust that obliterated the entire place. These are the images that Jesus draws up in our minds to frame the second coming. Massive, sweeping ungodliness and indifference and, and really 
resistance to the word of God. Consuming evil, evil men growing worse and worse, a mystery of of unlawlessness, which in our own day exists, but is being kept in check by God's power so we don't see its full expansion. But it'll come in the day of tribulation when a restraining force is taken away and this rampant ungodliness just propounds across the face of the earth. Spiritual indifference like the days of Noah and Lot until judgment comes suddenly upon them. And there's no place to escape. There's no place to escape. Jesus carries out the image going on there in Luke 17. It says, on that day, the one who is on the housetop is not going to be able to escape. His goods are in the house. He must not go down and take them out. Likewise, the one who's in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. We remember her. You know the story of Lot's wife. She was the one who was fleeing the city with Lot. Almost made it out alive. Until we read that as they were leaving his wife. Genesis 19.24 says from behind him looked back at the city and she became a pillar of salt. She she came so close to getting away, but ultimately her heart was too tied to this world. Her, Her stuff, her friends, her true longings were all back in Sodom. That's where her heart was. And so the day revealed it when it caught her up even in the destruction. And this is the point that Jesus is making. It's the point that Paul's making. The point is, is that when Jesus comes, we're going to be surrounded by a culture, by a society, by a world that is consumed with the things of this world. In fact, Jesus sort of wraps it up there. When he says that if anyone wants to save his life, he has to lose it. If anyone wants to find his life, he has to give it up. This is the message of the self-deception of the world. The day of the Lord, forgotten by most people, but not forgotten by God. And what Paul's telling us back over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what he's telling us is that you and I shouldn't fall into that. You and I ought not to be wrapped up in it. We don't have that kind of self-deception. We are not people of the night or people of darkness. We're not people who are wrapped up in that kind of ignorance. And so when a world around you comes along and says, you know, you take this religious stuff too seriously. You shouldn't be all concerned about these eternal matters. You just fill your life with entertainment and games and uh, these kinds of lifestyles. The goals that we have ought to be your goals. You ought to read our books. You ought to place your treasures where we place our treasures. 
You shouldn't be always thinking about the coming of Christ. You shouldn't always be thinking about the passing of this world. You're too pessimistic. You're always focused on the judgment. You're always focused on the end. You're making these ridiculous sacrifices. You're prioritizing these religious things far too much. You're letting go of these pleasures. You're letting go of these treasures. You should have them all right now. You should live exactly the same way we do and consume your time exactly the same way we do. The world is telling you this. The world is telling you everything is okay. Peace, security, peace, safety. And while the words are still in their mouth, suddenly the Lord will come. And so Paul says in verse 4, you, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, you are not in darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of light, children of the day, and we're not of the night and the darkness. You're not in a state of ignorance, a state of confusion. You belong to Christ. You belong to the light. You belong to the day. And like Peter, you set your affection on that day. You gird up the loins of your mind, as the phrase literally says, or you prepare your minds for action. All those sort of, all flowing thoughts that might sort of come into your mind that could trip you up. That's the, that's the image behind Peter. When he says, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, it's this image of a, of a Middle Eastern um, cloak that would drape around people's ankles in order to protect them from the brutal sun of the day. But whenever they, whenever they had to do something with some level of urgency, whenever they had to run or whenever they had to work, what they would do is they would pull those, those uh, cloaks in or they would pull up the, uh, the things around their ankles and tuck them into their belt, their girdle. So that they didn't trip over them unnecessarily. And this is what Peter's telling us we need to do. We need to pull in all of those sort of free-flowing thoughts. All of those thoughts that might trip us up. And we need to prepare ourselves for what the Lord has for us to do in the remaining time that we have. We need to guard our minds as those who understand what's going to happen. Not be drawn in by the values of a world that doesn't. You're not of the darkness. You're not darkened to the impending doom. The judgment that God's going to bring on all this stuff. You're not in the same sense of moral and spiritual ignorance. You're not blinded to spiritual realities. So that the Day will catch you like a thief. This is the contrast that Paul's making. The contrast between you who know and they who don't. Our knowledge and our understanding ought to impact our life, which really is the third characteristic of those who live in the light of his appearing in verses 6 through 8. They are awake to the spiritual dangers. They're awake 
to the spiritual dangers. Our awareness of the events should have a profound impact on our values and our behavior. So then, let us not sleep as others do, Paul says, but let us keep awake and be sober. We'll take more look at that next week. Let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, this is a, a call to us, a clarion call, a sobering call. We understand that there's all around us these voices, these values that are all coming out of the darkness. They're arising out of the same spirit that dominated the world in the days of Noah, the same heart that was so blinded in the days of Lot. Woe to us then, O Lord, if we begin to listen to that and we live our lives merely like those around us. You've redeemed us. You've called us out of the darkness into the kingdom of your precious Son. And to that end, Lord, you have given us a hope, an inheritance that is undefiled and not fading away. And we want to set our minds just like the Old Testament prophets set their minds on that day. Help us, O Lord, that we be not those who stumble, that we avoid the kind of drunkenness that would be associated with such false notions. Give us sober-mindedness, clear-headedness about the times in which we live and the ways that we ought to respond. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.